Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. NASA 557, contact tower 128.15. Caution, caution. Manual, fuel, manual, fuel. I'm John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Good to be with you. Um, We've been scattered all over the country. I think we got an interesting accident to dissect today. Um, It's one that John and I had an opportunity to work on together somewhat uh, back in 1992, March of 92, in New York City. U.S. Air 405, which was a Fokker F-28-4000, which was the later version of of that uh, F-28 aircraft, that was a real popular airplane uh, for, as we would call it today, a regional type airplane, because that's about the caliber that that Fokker was. One of the things we've been talking about, John, about this airplane with Todd is the fact that, again, this was a hard wing or what was considered a hard wing. It did not have any leading edge devices to create additional lift for the wing at slow speeds. It just had your conventional flaps. But there are a number of elements to this event that, again, reflect other accidents either before or after this particular accident. And we'll talk about that as we start to get into it. But this was an airplane that, uh, it was one of those dark and stormy days in New York City where it was uh, snowing, it was cold, it was just lousy, typical East Coast weather. These guys load up the airplane, but the airplane, they were already behind schedule because the the weather, this airplane came out of Jacksonville, Florida. So the weather was uh, lousy in, in New York. They were an hour and a half behind schedule. So now all of a sudden you get that racing the clock kind of feeling because they were trying to make up that schedule. This airplane then was headed to Cleveland, Ohio. And I know, Todd, and you doing some research on uh, some of the elements elements of this accident, there's a lot to discuss, not only from, of course, the aircraft itself, the weather, the de-icing, 
Um, there was some cabin issues. There were some uh, after accident medical response and ARF response issues as well. But there was also a design issue with this particular aircraft. Now, one of the uh, the side effects, not side effects, one of the realities of this aircraft, like you said, no leading edge devices, which meant it was particularly susceptible to wind contamination. For example, icing up during a storm. And in the report, which we'll have connected to the site, it gave some numbers saying, oh, if you had a, a droplet that was two millimeters in diameter per one square centimeter, you could lose up to 33% of your lift. Well, I did some quick calculation. We're talking about 3% contamination. So if you casually look at this wing, you say, oh, I see a few little spots here and there, but it's not like it's encrusted with ice. No, just a little bit of contamination, just a little bit of frozen stuff on the surface really kills the lift on this aircraft. Yeah. Pilots yeah. don't realize that either. You look out on the wing, you're looking for snow buildup on the top towards the front of the, leading, of the leading edge of the wing, but they don't really focus on the leading edge. In this particular wing design, anything that's on that really, that first part of the wing, uh, any roughness in that area, like sandpaper or, or even a bunch of bugs that have been smashed against it, affect the amount of lift that they get out of that wing. And if you get to this area, it really destroy a lot of your lift. And that's reminiscent of the ATR-72 accident that we talked about with the buildup of ice on the leading edge. So getting into this particular accident, uh, as I said, this airplane was an hour and a half behind schedule. The crew uh, had made the switch. They got on the airplane. And while they were de-icing, and they were de-icing at the gate, while they were de-icing at the gate, of course, it's snowing, uh, the weather's lousy, and um, the de-icing truck broke down. So now the airplane has been de-iced and the de-icing truck breaks down in a position where it's blocking the exit of the aircraft off the gate. So it takes them about 20, 25 minutes to fix that de-icing truck. By the time they get it operable and these guys are ready to push, Captain and First Officer talk about the fact that maybe we need to de-ice again. Um, just because it's been so long. So they de-ice a second time. And at this time, John, and you're familiar with this because, you know, you were in the in the system, they were using type 1 de-icing fluid. And type 1 at that time was just a 50-50 mix of hot water and ethylene glycol that they would spray on the aircraft. But, you know, you had to get it on and, and then go fly because it really didn't have any holdover properties or effectiveness over long periods of time. It wasn't it wasn't sticky. So you spray the wing and if, if you had precip continuing, it just diluted it and ran it off. So it wouldn't it wouldn't last on the wing very long. And because it was water on there, of course, you know, if it sat on there too long, that hot water, loses all of its, you know, of course, heat. And next thing you know, you, you're now freezing because you have surface temperatures on the aircraft skin that could be at or below freezing, which would speed that process up and degrade the properties of that type one de-icing fluid. So now these guys push off the gate. They're getting into a daisy chain um, because again, the weather's still lousy. The takeoffs are, are delayed. And they're sitting in the daisy chain and they're talking about whether or not they need to de-ice for a third time. 
And during the banter, of course, they're they're looking out the window as far as they can see. Now, this was uh, this was you know again late afternoon, early evening. Visibility looking out a window is not real easy. You can't see much out there. They do have a black stripe that was painted on the wing that they would use as a visual guide to determine whether or not there was a buildup of snow and ice on the wing. The, the first officer kept reporting that you know he it appeared to him that the wings look clear um and in fact that was reinforced by several other aircraft that happened to be passing by us air 405 who made comments about their that that the airplane looked clear to them it was an interesting comment that the first officer made as they're sitting in the daisy chain where he told the captain, yeah, maybe the aircraft in front of us will keep our wings clear, meaning that the exhaust from the aircraft in front of their aircraft uh, would be warm enough to uh, to keep the snow and ice from building up. It would melt it off the wing. That's very reminiscent of the same kind of comment that was made by the pilots in Palm 90. That was Air Florida. Uh, that crashed in Washington, D.C., where they tucked in right behind a 727, and they made the same comment because they didn't de-ice coming off the gate, and they figured, well, if we get close enough, that hot exhaust will melt the snow. But the captain on U.S. Air 405 made a very good response to that first officer's comment saying, yeah, that's true, but that could refreeze, and that presents a problem. So, they uh, they decide not to de-ice for a third time because they didn't want to pull out of the daisy chain. They were afraid they were going to have to go back in line. It was going to delay their departure. You know, the board looked at that decision making and really, you know, got a little wishy-washy whether or not that was a cause and effect, whether they should or they shouldn't have. But in 1992, John, in the airline business, you know, I mean, a lot of the decision-making was left up to the flight crew. It isn't as it is now where there's a lot of joint decision-making. That's right. And, uh, you know, it was a straight judgment call on his five. Well, how much of the wing could they see? Did they understand this, think this wing was so critical? I'm not so sure they did uh, until after this event because all the years I was de-icing uh, airplanes, nobody ever said anything about it. The only, only thing that we did in our favor the ice and airplanes is we made sure the wings were clean and no heavy weight on the on the airplane. But the wings, regardless, the wings had to be clean. But in our last training, they never mentioned about that su super critical wing, how how a little bit of, of a disruption on the leading edge could cause a problem. Yeah, and Todd, I know that, you know, looking at uh, some of the training issues that the, the board looked at, you know, there was concern uh, regarding the pilot operation because they brought up the fact that um, during the course when they finally got cleared um, and they still believed that the airplane was clear of ice and, and snow and that they were good to go, um, it was something unusual that the board couldn't find out. And that was why they rotated the aircraft early. That is, they never rotated on schedule at 124 knots they actually rotated at 100 the captain was flying rotated at 119 knots yet the first officer actually called the rotation at 113 knots and the board explored that then 
you know, I, I found that quite interesting from a human factors standpoint. Where was the system of checks and balances? Yeah. Well, I do know that that uh, on snowy and slushy runways in the Northeast, pilots tend to try to get the nose wheel light as they're going down. So they're going to be pulling back on the yoke to get that nose wheel from being a, a push push plow to being just sort of uh, glancing the surface to go down and reducing drag. Like, and here, here's what I'd like to add that um, when it comes to when this airplane did stall shortly after takeoff, the stall can happen at any speed. It's not a question of how fast the aircraft is going. It's a question of the angle of attack. And by rotating early in order to generate lift, they have to have a an higher angle of attack than they would if they'd rotated at the proper speed. And given the other things that are going on with reduced lift because of the contamination, the likelihood of a stall at a particular angle of attack, you need a lower angle of attack to stall, in other words. It doesn't have to be as extreme as on a clean wing. Yeah, and the board was, um, you know, again, they they took more of a neutral position. They could never figure out why or what the decision basis was for for coming up with that rotation speed. Um, and so it really went to the black hole of the report. They didn't commit to whether or not that was a cause or a contributing factor. But again, it's one of those decision-making things that when you start lumping these individual decisions the rotation speed, the fact that they didn't want to de-ice for a third time. And then once the airplane got in the air, they were both trying to fly that airplane, Todd. Um, you know, the first officer was doing his job to try and, um, you know, help the captain. And in when you read the report, it sounds like they had, you know, a lot of, a lot of time to figure out what the hell they were going to do and where they were going to put this airplane down. But this airplane stalled really about five to seven seconds right after liftoff. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole event is on on the airport at LaGuardia, and if you know LaGuardia, it's not very big, so it's amazing that the whole thing was contained on the airport. And Todd, when when that airplane did go over, I mean they they stalled the airplane. They were, I mean, they, it was a slow and sloppy flight. Um, it's interesting because the they they interviewed the uh, the first officer who did survive. The captain didn't survive, um, and he said everything was nominal: the the takeoff roll, the rotation, and the air uh, airplane getting airborne. Yet when they interviewed the surviving passengers, and we have to mention that um, there were a number of fatalities, twenty seven fatalities in this accident. Um, the, the surviving passengers that were interviewed said, yeah, we were blasting down the runway. And when the airplane started to rotate, it just felt like we were slow. So they had a perception that the airplane wasn't at the proper flying speed when they lifted off. And, um, and so now the airplane is airborne. They have a control issue. They're walking the rudder, trying to keep the airplane aligned with the runway trying to figure out where they're going to quote put it back down um because they got into a brief discussion according to uh to the report about where was the best place to land as the first officer uh talked about well guess what they ended up back on the runway except they were moving in a um in a horizontal direction that was perpendicular to the direction of flight which then took them over the side of a seawall after they dragged the left wing. Um, and, and then, of course, 
uh, the accident sequence occurred. But Todd, in in looking at this, you know, you dive into a lot of the the, the small stuff and, and the background stuff. Did you see anything else that, you know, from a crew decision making and a crew operation that uh, that really fostered some bad decision making? I don't know if it was bad decision making as much as compared to the norm that's today. That the kind of very distinct roles that you have in the, in the crew were. The pilot flying has one set of duties and the pilot not flying has another set of duties. I didn't see that here. Now, this is three years after the 1989 event. That's also U.S. Air at LaGuardia. When uh, crew and cockpit, or either crew or cockpit resource management, however they call it then, was just coming on stream. This is three years later. And it's kind of surprising to me that this wasn't more prominent in what I saw in the report. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Plus, here you had a... Uh a captain who had about 10,000 hours with several thousand in the Fokker, yet you had a 4,500-hour first officer with only 29 hours in the airplane. And the board never really developed whether or not that experience or inexperience played a role or a factor in this accident. And my role at the time um, of the accident was I was uh, responding out of the New York uh, regional office. We had a regional office in the Northeast and it was based out of New York and I responded, but I didn't investigate. I, I worked a portion of the accident until the go team took it over. But, you know, some of the things that started to develop or should have been more developed, I, I, I went back to look in the report and I didn't see that. And I found that kind of curious, especially about pilot experience, given the fact that 1987, we had an issue with Continental, uh, Continental Airlines out here in Colorado at Old Stapleton, Continental 1713, where, yeah, you had a very experienced captain, but he had very minimal time in the uh, in the left seat of that airplane and a brand new first officer in his IOE, similar conditions, snowing like crazy. They de-ice the airplane and they get into a daisy chain. First officer's flying. They take off. As soon as they break down, they stall. The airplane rolls over and dies. And, and then, of course, we had Palm 90 or Air, Air Florida. So I would have expected them to, to really expand on, on those issues, and especially when it came to training. John, do you remember if there was an, uh, a lot of training issues that, uh, that came out after this as far as changes to the training for winter operations? Well, internally in the company, there was a lot of changes that took place. But it wasn't as a result of any information that came from the board. They just they just responded. In fact, the first officer on this on this particular flight uh, became because of this accident became one of the largest advocates inside the the company for safety programs. Hmm. He really became a very vocal, very very large advocate. They missed it. You know, on that Denver crash was that a DC nine ten? Yes, I couldn't. Right, so that's another airplane with a hard wing. Yes. No leading edge devices. See, that, I'm glad that those are all gone right now, uh, except in the business aviation side. But uh, and some know, of the older and some of some of the older regional jets are still hard wing. So yes. Now I want to go back a little bit. You were mentioning several events here. You mentioned the Continental event in 1987 in Colorado, Palm 90, which is. Uh, famous for those of a certain age. It's what I call the first CNN accident because this is one that was streamed live on CNN all day long. 
That was 1982. And this event happened in 1992. So you would think, well, you have these three major events with wind contamination or, uh, you know, crew decision-making right after takeoff. Why are you still having these things? Well, keep yeah. in mind, this was 30-some-odd years ago, going back up, up to uh, Palm 90, which is, good, goodness, 40 years ago. Uh, the communication that we have now with the Internet and such simply didn't exist. So if you were even somebody in the business who was interested in this, the only way you can find out about it is to hunt down uh, one of the reports from the NTSB. And I was in grad school in the 80s, and it wasn't that easy. And I was at a major research university to find these. And you'd have to be very, very dedicated to you know, write the NTSB or pay the government printing office or whatever the case may be to get one of these in your hot little hands. And uh, again, fast forward to when I was at Boeing, one of our greatest resources was rows and rows of file cabinets that had hard copies of all kinds of incidents and accident reports. We take it for granted now, but back then, it was hard for people in the business to get this kind of information in one place. Now all you have to do is ask AI. Chat GPT will tell you everything you want to know, Todd. So your work is done. I once I had a, a speech that I gave, and I, I gave it several times to tweak it a little bit, but it basically said that after an accident, we have a communications moment, and it's 30 to 60 days where any any information from the accident is listened to intently by people in the business. You delay a report for a year, and it's all news. And today, what we're seeing coming out of the NTSB is delays of two years. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have the same value that that it once had. And they yeah. need to be more timely with their reports and the information. At least put when they get, when they finally finish uh, the on scene and the factual, make a lot of that information available. Right now, they they hoard it like gold and don't put it out. And it has by the time they get it out, it's lost all its value. Now, there were a couple of issues that uh, we've talked about in the past as far as the process is concerned, where um, during the course of an investigation, you may find things or issues that aren't cause or contributing to the accident, but they do enhance aviation safety. One of them was the uh, anti-icing switches in the cockpit. When the board examined the cockpit, they found that the anti-ice system was in the off position. And they examined that to determine whether or not that played a factor in the overall accident uh, scheme. What they determined was it didn't. But what they did find was that those switches were very vulnerable to a light touch. That is, they could be changed. And U.S. Air then put out an all-hands bulletin to the maintenance side of the house. And I'm sure you remember this, John, where they made the maintenance guys go in and change out all those switches on the aircraft and put a locking type switch in the cockpit. Yeah, we had a fleet campaign directive, uh, which is what it was called, to go in and replace all those switches. Yeah, and and so that was in an enhancement to, an, in, you know, at least bolster safety, even though it wasn't found to be a cause or a contributing factor. Now, the other thing that we always talk about, especially with passengers sitting in the back who don't pay attention to uh, to the passenger briefing and look at the uh, passenger safety card and things like that, a lot of the people, because this airplane went inverted and then went into the water inverted, they're hanging upside down. In water, 
where their head was underwater halfway in some cases it was fully submerged but the majority were at least halfway submerged there were a lot of people seen trying to get out of their seats without removing their seat belt because they're in this high stress high anxiety panic mode it's dark it, they're upside down they're hanging from their seat belt and they didn't know how to open up their seat belt and a lot of them drowned in their seat because they couldn't extricate themselves because they couldn't find the release. And one of the things that we've talked about on previous shows is that high stress, high, high anxiety situation where it, this is a, a startle factor for the passenger. And if you're not acclimated to the airplane and understand that the seatbelt in your car, you open it with a button, you push a button, not in an airplane, you pull the flap but your brain reverts to what it knows best. And next thing you know, you're trying to push a button when in fact you should be pulling a flap. And a lot of these people um, uh, succumb to, uh, they survived the accident only to drown because they couldn't get out of the airplane. And I think Todd, you know, when we've talked about it in a number of different shows, it is all about being prepared. And uh, on that note, uh, one of the things about stress in human beings is it tends to be sudden on, onset, unexpected, and the first and only time you ever experience that. And you can train all you want, and that doesn't guarantee that you'll act in a certain way when the stress happens. Sometimes you perform a lot better than anyone expected, sometimes a lot worse. But one thing's for sure, uh, it's unpredictable. And John, I think this goes to your point as you close our shows all the time, is pre-flight preparation. We always we always direct that pre-flight preparation to flight crews. That is the pilots, whether it's a general aviation pilot or a, an airline crew, if you will. But passengers also have to be pre-flight prepared as well. Whether you're flying in a general aviation airplane or as a passenger in a commercial aircraft, I mean that's the importance of these briefings, because like the two of you. I mean, I'm on an airplane every single week and I'm on a different model airplane every single week. And one of the interesting things about this accident was that the passenger briefing card indicated um, they were using a generic card, indicated that there were two forward doors in this airplane. When in fact, this particular model airplane didn't have two doors. They didn't have an L1 and an, and an R1, which would be in the galley area. They only had an L1 door. And that changes the scheme of things when you're trying to evacuate out of the front end of that airplane, thinking that there's two doors when, in fact, there's only one. And so, again, it's all about you as a passenger being pre-flight prepared. And I think, you know, we've had this discussion. You get on an airplane, Todd, do you count the seats in front of you and behind you to the nearest exit? And you can't assume, like John was saying, and you were saying there could be different models every time you do it. And if you have an airplane you've never been on before, don't assume that there's like exit in front of you and exits behind you. If I remember on the F-28, uh, there were no exits after the wing. So that's one of the reasons I was always nervous sitting in those aircraft behind the wing. It's like not that the airplane would crash. It's just that I was very comfortable with having exits in front of me and exits behind me. And I was uncomfortable when I didn't have that second choice. Yeah, you know, you know, I have that. Go ahead, John. I have that same feeling with when there's no rear exits. Right, yeah. so it's, uh, just personal preference. But 
people need to pay attention. Like I said, count the seats. You know, I, oftentimes when I fly at night, I have a pen light that I carry on. When when I when TSA doesn't make me put it in my bag, um, but I have a little flashlight uh, for that reason. I used to have a whistle too when I flew. Would be in my jacket pocket someplace uh, because you can't yell uh, for very long, but you can blow a whistle for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, but you use that whistle for other things, John. So, <laughs> where you are, that's all. Yeah, I think that whistle came in handy at South Beach one time, didn't it? So, <laughs> but the there's an airport is, at South Beach. What's the attraction of South Beach anyway? <laughs> Sand. <laughs> You'll have to take a step down and observe for yourself. Yeah. I agree. But the big thing is that, that, you know, out of this accident, there were some good lessons learned and that we try to, you know, reemphasize those lessons and that you can't take things for granted as a passenger because airplanes, if they, if you do survive and they, you know, the airplane comes to a sliding stop, it's not like you're just going to dust yourself off, undo your seatbelt and walk out of the aircraft. You could find yourself hanging upside down at night. And we saw that with Eastern 401 in the Florida Everglades and a number of survivable accidents where, of course, the airplane, it's dark, it's smoky, uh, and there were some small fires in this particular uh, fuselage of U.S. Air 405, even though the airplane had gone into the water. So you mentally have to prepare yourself, and just like a pilot trying to stay ahead of the aircraft and anticipating what the next move is as you're flying, as a passenger, especially during takeoff and landing, you should already be thinking, okay, if something bad happens, what am I going to do and where am I going to go? Um, it's just a, a one of those good little checklist things that being prepared because now those thoughts are in the front of your mind. You don't, you're not going to be so stunned that again, you have to sit there in, in fear, you know, <laughs> and paralysis by analysis of you will of trying to analyze, okay, what do I got to do? Where do I got to go? You already kind of have it planned out. And now you can just react if you have to. You know, a lot of people don't realize, that, and I, I read this not long ago, that 92% of the accidents that we have today are survivable. That means and that's a very high number. And that's a testament to what we've done over the years in learning, you know, from these accidents to make these accidents more crash survivable. Yeah, people don't realize, that, you know, the fire, you mentioned the fire. We now have fire blocking seats because there's foam rubber or foamy material in the seat that you sit on, which was always very flammable. Now we have a, a seat cover over that, that that blocks it. It's like, a, you know, I'm going to call it asbestos, but it's not. But it keeps that cushion contained. And then the seat cover that you sit on with all the pretty colors is not the same. So there's two covers. And the, the sidewalls, plastic-like material, those used to burn readily. Now they're very, very difficult to get to burn. And the, the rugs, the rugs used to burn. Now we have them. They made a material that won't support fire on their own. So the, the cabin interiors have really gone a long way to help the survivability. And that's all a product of what the of the work that the board did with the FAA and the in the industry to clean up that material inside the airplanes. Now, yeah. in the last few minutes, we've mentioned all sorts of events including what you just mentioned, Eastern 401, which I believe was 1972. 
and uh, I'll flash you know, notes about this so people can look them up themselves. But let me bring one up from more contemporary time. I think this was 2005 in Toronto. There was an Air France A340, went off the runway, into a ravine, broke up, huge fire. Nobody died. Eight exits on this aircraft. I think all but a handful of people only exited through two. And this airplane was burning while they were exiting. Now, if this had been 30 years ago with the materials and the training that was around then, a whole lot more people would have died in that accident. Yeah. And and I think there's one more thing to bring up on this particular accident, and that is with U.S. Air 405, the Canadians were a little upset (laughs) because they had just investigated an almost identical accident. Um, They identified as the Dryden accident. But Dryden, Ontario. Yep. And it involved the Fokker F-28. It had ice. The crew took off. They lost the airplane. It crashed. And they had made a number of recommendations out of their accident investigation that apparently didn't get heated or at least disseminated into, um, you know, at least the U.S. as they believed it should have been. And you brought this up, Todd. It was all about that period of time and the lack of the ability to communicate in a timely manner, very safety critical information. And, um, and, and the Canadians were really upset because they said, based on our recommendations, had U.S. Air incorporated the things that we identified, that accident wouldn't have happened. And, wow. um, and so, again, that's the importance of these lessons learned and the dissemination of good information that needs to be heeded by the industry you know, waiting for the government to mandate it, it it is never going to happen in a lot of cases. And why do you do that? Why not incorporate it yourself in in an interest of aviation safety? Um, John, I mean, that's the whole purpose of the party system is so that you can get firsthand information, identify issues that could be safety critical and take corrective actions immediately and not wait for the year or two years or even three years that uh, it takes for the board or someone else to produce a report and, and then make some recommendations. Well, in here, Ontario, I'm very familiar with that one. Uh, it took forever. It was more in the order of three years. It was a judicial investigation, not an accident investigation. And uh, the findings are contained in five volumes of about two inches thick each. And uh, I actually have them someplace. And uh, I went through those years and years ago. It was not timely, and information was buried in a in a ocean of paperwork. So it wasn't conducive to being des- uh, put out to the industry as a meaningful bit of information. Even the news media just went on once over lightly when it was re- initially uh, released. Yeah, and that's that, that's the sad thing is that you know there's great information it gets buried. Um, we we find the information that gets buried in a lot of these reports that you know is very beneficial or could be beneficial to the industry. Well, I think we did a job to uh, to dissect this particular accident and talk about the safety issues. Um, we haven't fixed all the problems because we still see similar decision making and similar type of events that uh, we saw in uh, in the ATR seventy two accident with a design issue and the ice buildup on the wings and, and winter operations. And I think that that in and of itself 
is one of those critical things that, again, every time there's an accident or incident, there is always a lesson to be learned. And that information needs to be disseminated sooner rather than later. Yes, it has to be valid. Yes, it has to be validated. And um, and then it has to be useful. But we shouldn't just blow it off or figure, you know what, we'll wait for the NTSB or somebody else when it finally comes out a year or two later. Because like you said, John, it's old news. And then people blow it off. They don't take it for what it's worth. They see it as uh, it, it is what it is. And that that's not what this is all about. So I think we did a good job of identifying these things. But again, the industry still has to heed the messages from these older accidents. Yes. And with that, yeah. I think I have a perfect second to last word. Uh, during this discussion, we talked about over a half dozen events spreading over half a century. And I'm going to do my level best to either get the documents or links to information from each one of the ones we touch base on. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a fun new podcast called So There I Was. If you're a fan of aviation or simply enjoy hearing captivating stories, then this is the podcast for you. Hosted by former Marine pilots Fig and Repeat, this podcast shares first-hand accounts of flying experiences that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you're in the mood for something funny, scary, poignant, or tragic, this podcast has it all. With a relaxed and conversational tone, the pilots share their stories like you're sitting right there with them at the bar after a flight. Hear from fighter pilots, astronauts, Blue Angels, aircraft carrier captains, Navy and Coast Guard rescue pilots, and many more. Most have survived near-death experiences. Others have overcome incredible disabilities to continue to fly airplanes. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Hear what it feels like to be shot off the bow of a carrier or into space. Experience the terror of landing on a pitching deck on a night so black that the pilot can barely taxi afterwards because his legs are shaking so badly. Hear firsthand how lonely it is to be in the middle of the ocean in a life raft on a dark night in eight-foot seas. Each story is unique and told with a level of detail that will make you feel like you were there. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll laugh until you cry. But one thing is certain. You won't be born. So there I was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. Good. That was a, a, a nice second to the last word because we are going to leave it to the patriarch to give us the last words. And I, I, unfortunately, I'm going to aim it at pilots again. If you're going to go flying, do a good job of pre-flighting before you even uh, preparing before you even leave for the airport. When you get to the airport, do it again to make sure nothing has changed. When you go out to your airplane, to a very thorough flight. I just gave a presentation at a, a business aviation function, and uh, I got a lot of nods from people when I told them what I saw um, with professional pilots in the business environment and the type of pre-flights they'd done. We got some laughs, but we got some people that would fully acknowledge uh, what I was telling them. And so do a good pre-flight, and then after you get in the air, put that head on a swivel, and there's a lot of new pilots out there, and there's a lot of other people that may be not paying attention. And you'll let them go have their own accident, and you become part of their accident. But please, please fly safely. 
Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.